I'm not quite sure where to start. Okay, the first thing I think I am going to do, though, is give you a little show and tell to give you some, a little bit of confidence about some of the things that, that I'm going to give you um, in our outlines of the things that we looked at. I don't know about you, but did you guys find it difficult, even reading it, to figure out exactly what was going on in each of those paragraphs? You know, where were they in the temple and what was the significant point? I mean, because of, because of our unfamiliarity with a, with a system like this, I'm, in my thinking, going back to the mind of Ezekiel and the people of that time when this message was given, these people were very familiar with the, with the uh, sacrificial system. They understood the temple. Um, even if they weren't priests and didn't go in there where the priests were, they talked to those priests all the time. The priests gave them pl- lots of instruction and training on it. They knew exactly, and they saw the, the reality of it in their daily lives as they had these things done before them, and they s- stood there and watched. They saw it. So when this vision was given to Ezekiel about the temple, I can just imagine for Ezekiel it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, right? Except for when things were slightly different from what it should have been for them, right? Like if, if there was a variation or a change in, in a certain dimension of something and all of a sudden he's going, wait a minute, that's not the size it was before. Well, what, you know, so maybe he was a little confused about things like that. But about the overall usage of certain rooms and what they were used for, for him that was nothing, correct? Yeah. All right. So for you and I, however, the opposite is true. We not only... You know, the, the measurements of a, of a room, we're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't care because we didn't know what the ones were before, and we don't know what the ones are in the future, and so we don't even know there's a difference, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, didn't, I don't know which of those rooms are different unless a commentary told me, right, in my reading. Oh, the altar is much larger. Just, did somebody see how much larger the altar is going to be? Six times larger. <laughs> I went, really? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what the commentary said. And since I don't know anything, I'm just trusting he knew what he was saying. Um, But to me, those details were not quite as significant as the details of um, what they were doing in each of these rooms. And what did you think about what you saw about what was being done in, in this temple in the future? What, did, what, what were some of your thoughts or your puzzlements about it? Why sacrifices? Yeah, why are there sacrifices? Has, had, had God not remembered that in the future he was going to give the book of Hebrews <laughs> to the church telling us there's no need for this any longer, right? So as we read this, this is a, like a, uh, what do you call that? It's a, a dilemma, you know, to us. We look at this and we think, golly, now how do I reconcile that with what I know is true about being in the new covenant, right? So what would be the plumb lines of truth that we need to adhere to as inductive students again? Let me just write them down. You guys tell me what they are. What do we do when, we, when we're trying to come into interpretation? Okay, do not violate known doctrine okay and context rules for interpretation 
Okay, so keep those two things in mind, and we're going to come back to that when we start talking at, at, at the uh, end of what we're going to... We're going to try to go through and look at the outlines of some of these things and look at a few word studies and so forth. But I want to come back then at the end of this and say, okay, so why the temple in the millennial kingdom? If we know Hebrews was also a word given to us by God, and it is, and he says there's no need for sacrifices any longer, then why would he reinstitute it? At this point, would you say with emphatic clarity, yes, it's going to be reinstituted in the millennial reign? Yes. Yes. We know. It's exactly what it's telling us. Because for one thing, what has happened in the book of Ezekiel concerning the glory of God? What did it do? It, it departed the temple, correct? Ezekiel is writing this before or after that happened? After. So we know this glory coming into the temple is going to be future, correct? Did the glory of God come back into the second, into the second tem- temple at Herod's time? No, we, we have no record of that. The scriptures are totally devoid of that and it never, it never returns to them, right? So what we know is absolutely, this is speaking of the millennial reign. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit coming back to a temple that they are going to build, correct? All right, so that, as far as, you know, putting down some parameters for is it before, is it after, clarifying that, we, we're pretty emphatically sure this is speaking of a millennial temple in which uh, the Holy Spirit is going, or the glory of God is going to return to that temple and dwell among his people at that time. Okay, so that's clear to us. What's not clear to us is the why. Why the temple system? Why the sacrifices, right? Which, which seem to contradict uh, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Well, actually all of Hebrews, but saying we don't even need a priest anymore for that matter, right? And here we see priests being reinstituted and a, and a sacrificial system being reinstituted. So we're gonna, we'll, we'll get to that point once we try to get through all of these other things. But what I, what I did when we were going through chapter by chapter, starting in 40, and we're trying to look at each of these rooms and the measurements and the purposes for them and so forth, and we're trying to do an outline, right, of our a paragraph outline of each of these chapters. I use this book here, which is a treasure to me, and Tom is the one who loaned this to me uh, from our Sunday school class, Tom, our doctor friend, Parker, Parker, right, Tom Parker. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> this book is, was given to him in Israel by a rabbi. And apparently, I don't think it's even something for sale. You can't just purchase it. It's something that's only available if you know somebody kind of a thing. But what was great about it is by this man, Chaim Florini. I might not be speaking. That sounds Italian to me. F L F. Oh, C-L-O-R-F-E-N-E, Clarfini. I've never heard of that. Have you, anybody, heard that Hebrew name? Okay. But he is a um, uh, rabbi. He knows the system. He understands it all. And he goes literally through Ezekiel, verse by verse, and gives you interpretation of what's being said. He expounds on it from his perspective. 
I've got to tell you, the only thing I found about him that that uh, makes me just kind of hold it a little bit at a at a hand's distance is you you can see the uh, mysticism that he's embraced in some of this. There's a lot of mis you know the um, the Hebrews often do that mis- the, the Kabbalah faith system where they mix Hebrew with mystic mysticism, the new age mysticism, and they come up with this thing called Kabbalah. Well, he does that a little bit in here. He talks about the mystical side of things and the, the understanding from perspective of what does the number five mean. And he talks about the spirits and how, what they, you know, are saying and what the numbers are speaking to him. And so it gets a little kind of funny in that regard, but on the other hand, he does understand the, the, the system of the uh, temples. He knows what everything is supposed to be about. He would be more like, not quite as good, obviously, as Ezekiel, because Ezekiel lived in the day when it was actually going on. But he, would, he studied it so thoroughly, and it's a part of who he is as a Hebrew man. And he lives in Israel, where you know, he's got access to everything. Um, he was able to help me clarify as I went through to try to identify these rooms and list them. So I'm relying on him heavily today as I take you through the outline. And if we differ on things, on what we think, you know, was going on in a certain room or whatever, just know that I'm okay with, you know, if you see something different, it's not a big deal. What I really want us to do when we're done with this outline, more than the precision of things, I want us to then pull back and look at the whys behind it and even the who's behind it because I think that's the part that's going to really matter most to us. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Wow, we need that link. Send it to send it to Lois, please. Yeah, so she can send it out to everybody. It is. <gasps> Ooh, thank you. Well, see, Tom, he was telling me this. Well, it could have been that when he got it, it wasn't available. But thank, yay! Oh, I'm gonna get that. Send me that link too, and send it to everybody, and then we'll all have it. Okay. Oh, okay. See, if people just know about computers. <laughs> and I know nothing. But, oh, this is the best. It really is a good one. And I, except for the idea that, the, that there's some, you, can, you will see it if you purchase this for yourself to use. You will come to see there's some mysticism, you know, in the mix. But if you can weed through that and overlook some of those kinds of statements, then you'll be able to still get to the meat of things. What this does for us, though, is he, he very clearly identifies what's going on in these rooms. You know, I don't know. I, I didn't see anything in here that told me anything in that regard. And I didn't take the time to read it either. Yeah, no, he didn't. No, probably not. <laughs> and it seems to me like Tom met him on one of his trips to Israel. And so he met, 
I, I'm assuming he met him, the, the author, and then this guy gave it to him. Or maybe it was somebody else, one of the other rabbis who had this book, and then the, he gave it to him. I'm not sure which. I don't remember that part of the story. I wish Tom was here to tell us. But it's really good. So what I'm saying to you is some of my conclusions I, I pulled right from this book to help me because I was lost like you all were. <laughs> I was just as lost as you. <laughs> Isn't that good to know? <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Okay, well, so let's get started on just going through uh, uh, the storyline here of each of these um, chapters. So we're going to start with Ezekiel's temple. Um, and the, the verse, though, that I I did pull out right at the beginning, and I put it at the top of your chart, is that we are to give attention to all I am going to show you. Because apparently there's something about all that he was going to show Israel that he felt was of importance that they pay attention, right? Maybe it was because he knew some of the things were going to be different and they needed to be aware of that so that when they do it, they would do it the way God wanted it for the future. Maybe, it, maybe he was wanting them to pay attention because... Uh, in the past, they really hadn't. <laughs> had they? Ha, what? What has been our understanding at this point in this book about how they had uh, exercised in the temple their worship system? Idol worship. Yeah, abominations, all, all kinds of things. They had even defiled the the walls of the face of the walls of the interior of the temples by drawing artwork and so forth to these various gods that they were worshiping. And they set up their idols right next door to God's, you know, temple areas. And so, I mean, it was like a real slap in the face to God and it was a total defilement of the holy, right? One of the, one of the things that uh, he closed... Uh, the book with or the explanation of it at the end of chapter 41 or no 43 go to uh, 4320 because I want you to just see this one statement before we get started because I thought it was really cool maybe that's not 4320 what chapter is this hold on guys 4220 check that one Yeah, 4220. Take a look at 4220 and tell me what you see there. Yeah. It's to divide between the holy and the profane. So at the end of that particular chapter, he's gone outside to the exterior of the wall, that go, the parameter wall, correct? And, and he measures that parameter wall, which inside then is all the complex and all the things that we looked at through each of these chapters starting 40 41 42 43 so around the parameter then he says about that parameter wall it's that which separates what the holy from the profane now do we know what the profane means profane doesn't necessarily mean the the um the sin necessarily so much as it means what that not that which is holy, not that which is dedicated or consecrated. It's the common from the holy, right? Okay, so I thought that was a, a, a significant point to bring out at the beginning. Okay, so let's start with chapter 40, and let's just start to go through here. What in chapter 40 is going on? Where, tell me, first of all, where and who this is all about. 
Who and where of this chapter? Okay, so it's Ezekiel, and what happens with Ezekiel? He has a vision. Right, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Speak up louder, James. Yes. Yeah. So he's transported. Okay. Well, we know it's a vision. Because, so in a vision, it's in your mind. And in his mind, God took him back to... Because where is Ezekiel geographically when he has this vision? He's still in Babylon in his exile, correct? And so he has a vision and God takes him where? Okay, taken to Jerusalem. All right. And, in, and where in Jerusalem? I think this is interesting because he doesn't say the mountain of God or the, to the temple of God. He says to a very high mountain. As if he doesn't quite recognize it. Did you find that? Did you all notice that part of it? It's to a very high mountain. And so to me, that statement tells me, although he knows he's in Jerusalem, and he, so it should have been familiar to him, and yet it seems, the way that he's speaking about it, it seems like there's an unfamiliarity with it. Okay, so he's, he's in Israel to Jerusalem, verse 2, and a high mountain. And I think this part's very interesting too. What, is, what else does he say about, he's, what else does he see on that mountain? A structure like the city. And, the, and on which side of the mountain is that? South. On the south side of the mountain. So let's put that up there. He sees a city on south of the mountain. Or some, a structure like a city. In other words, again, is he recognizing his own hometown, where he came from? He came from Jerusalem, right? And was taken into this captivity. And so now he's in this captivity and he's being taken back by vision. And he sees this this very high mountain and something like a city. (laughs) So it almost sounds to me like he's a little confused about what he's looking at. He knows what he should be seeing, but he's not seeing exactly what he's familiar with. That's true. Because, well, you gotta, you got to think about it in the future. If it's at the end of the tribulation, that city won't look the same. Oh, absolutely it won't. And so that, that was my point. If you think about it, in the era, the time in history when Ezekiel lived, what, kind, what would the city have looked like to him? And now think about him being transported in his mind far into the future. Generations and generations have passed. Much of his, have you you ever seen these movies like Back to the Future? You know, and he goes into the future and they're on hoverboards and they're doing really funky things that sound so fun. Or do you remember back in when you were a little kid? No, this is really dating me. Back to the the age of the Jetsons. You remember (laughs) the Jetsons? And Celeste and I talked about that one day about that one of those things you put over your head and you get your hair done all at once. And (laughs) right. So, you know, I'm just thinking, yeah. So for him, he's going, it's on a high mountain, it's a structure that looks like a city, but he's kind of confused. Isn't that interesting? Did you, pay, did you notice that, guys? Did anybody go, oh yeah, that's weird. And I just thought, when that, ca- that caught my attention because I thought to myself, yeah, that would be like a real trip. 
<laughs> That's a vacation into the future for him. Okay, so he sees a city, something like, like a city, on, on the south side of the mountain. So now at least we have the north, south, east, west. We've got some uh, geography down in our, our mind. And who is with him in this vision? A man. Now, did you guys find that one interesting? Because it doesn't give us anything more than that. A man whose appearance is what? Okay, and so what does that tell you? Like bronze. Shiny, obviously, shiny. Now, probably, if you would say this is someone in the vision, would this be probably human or, or angelic? Probably spiritually angelic of some kind, right? That's all we know. We don't know. Beyond that, we don't know. Now, I can tell you what he says. You want to know what he says? It doesn't really matter a whole lot, but are you interested in what Chaim says? He says it's probably Gabriel, and he gave a rendition of some of his mystical reasons why. <laughs> but, you know. Um, Ezekiel 9. Oh, gosh, you caught me off guard. Oh, no, yes, there is a different man in white linen. I would say that um, in, the, in the fact that he's called a man, it just has that appearance of a man. But we don't get any of the key identifiers that we get with the man in, with the writing case who marks people for salvation. This, and it, but could they be the same? Yes. Are they maybe different? Yes, <laughs> but we don't know. What does that tell you about the significance of the man in the storyline? Is he, is he important enough that, this, that the writing of this is written in such a way that he gives us information so that we could find an answer as to who it is? Is he a significant point? No, he's just a man. There's a communicator. Apparently, this communicator is sent by God, Right? And it's to convey to and to help uh, Ezekiel, guide Ezekiel through things so that he can find his way through all these rooms and to pay attention to the things that he is seeing. Yeah, and Ezekiel 9, there's something like five or six men, and in the middle of them was one. That a distinctive one who had a distinctive role. And he's in the midst of the coals, too, is he not, of the, of the cherubim, yeah. right? So I, it seemed to me more that that one in chapter 9 was probably Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and as the one who marks and so forth, where this one is, is just a man. It seems to be a messenger and a, and a helper to Ezekiel as he goes through this vision. Beyond that, we don't know. It's all speculation. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So, I'm wondering, can this be a millennial kingdom after this, a millennial temple after? Absolutely. It has to be because of the fact that uh, what they are going to be doing here and what Ezekiel is being instructed for him and his people. And he's speaking about, uh, he speaks to uh, Ezekiel and says, tell them the design of this temple that it do what for them? 
a couple of things that he was hoping it would do, one thing anyway, that he wanted them to come to a conclusion about, which was what? Their sins, that they would recognize their sins. Can you work that one out for me? Tell me what you think that was talking about. Let's, let's find it together. It's in 41, maybe. No, 42. <laughs> I have it marked. 43.10. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Do you see who it's to addressing? The house of Israel. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is very interesting. What do we know about this temple? Has it been built yet? Obviously, these specific Jews were not going to be the ones who were going to be doing them. Do you think God knew that? So why did he tell them that they are to learn and memorize them, that they do them? What was he saying to them? What has God taught them back in Deuteronomy about raising up their their generations of children? Teach them as you walk along the path, when you sit down, when you rise up, and when you walk along the path, that they mayest to do all that is written therein in the law, right? That they observe it, that they obey God, that they honor God, all these things, correct? So would you say this is probably and quite obviously what he's saying here? Because obviously this generation that Ezekiel is going to share this with is not going to be the generation that's going to do it, Right? But he's rather speaking to who? A collective group called the House of Israel. That's what he said. Tell it to the House of Israel. So I think that's important for us. I think it helps us a little bit better in understanding why the importance then of teaching this. And he's saying, who is it that's going to teach this to their children? Those who are what? Is that the next generation? Well, well... Okay, we talked, to, we, I think you, you missed a little bit, but let, let me just do it again. It's okay, it's okay. Let me, let me do it again. We are talking about a thousand-year reign when there's going to be a city, right, or a temple or a kingdom, right, that Christ is going to rule and reign in. And in that, there is going to be this great temple that we're talking about, correct? That they're, this is my temple structure. Okay, so that's temple. This is to the south, something that looks like a city. (laughs) Okay, something that looks like a city, and that's going to be it. What happens just previous to this time of the thousand-year reign? Yeah, Daniel's 70th week. Okay, previous to this is what we call... The church age, right. Previous to that, of course, was the cross. And we're all the way back here with Ezekiel. Correct? We know that at where we are right now, that, for, that temple has fallen, right? What was the year? 598? Was that right? 598? Okay, look it up, guys. Come, I'm, I'm sorry. I, have to, I should have pulled. 
586, Jerusalem falls. 586. 587, he was reported about it. But it fell in, in 586. 586 B.C. <laughs> Let me make that look like a, instead of feel, it's fell. <laughs> okay, the, the temple fell in 586 B.C. Here we are with Ezekiel. So what we're talking about now, um, Barbara, is we're, he is having a vision. So we're going to put this up here. This is his vision. Ezekiel's having a vision of this time right here in history. And he is saying to, uh, God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he's saying to him at this time, tell the people, so here's all my people, right? He says, if they'll be repentive, tell them, speak it to them, and tell them that they may do it. Obviously, he's not saying these people are going to do it. Would that make any sense at all? Obviously, that's not what he meant. What was he meaning then? The system of the law has always been what, according to Deuteronomy? Teach it to your children, basically, and to all the people, that they may observe these things and do these things, correct? So he's saying teach it to them so that generation by generation by generation by generation by generation by generation, when this occurs... They will know what they are to do. They will have this instruction. And you know what's very interesting to me? What do I have right here? A Jewish man living in Israel, studying these things that Ezekiel wrote. And what I found very interesting too was just that um, when you go back and look at all the, the, uh, the history, and he, he recants some of it in this book. He talks about generations of Jewish people who have gone to Ezekiel and tried to learn it and interpret it. And they have been frustrated by it. There's been much debate about it. There's lots of controversies about Ezekiel's temple for obvious reasons. It wasn't like the old temple. There's some significant changes to it, right? And now I don't know what those changes are by just, even though I've done the homework, I still don't know what the old one was like in comparison to it because I'm not that familiar. But I know there's changes. Yes. Right. Right. That's changed. So they also the the positions and of some staircases have changed. They're moved from one side to another side. Um, uh, so some of them have become more square in in shape now, rather than more oblong in shape. And so I know there are some differences. And certainly Ezekiel would have known that. So as he's talking to these people about it, and if particularly if any of the ones that he's talking to here are those who are going to be the, the future uh, Levitical priest line people who are studying this, they are still intently studying it. Because what did these people do before that time? What happens in here? Yeah, they're going to come back and rebuild Herod's temple, right? That's right. 
That's, that's right. No, they didn't. They, as a matter of fact, in the instructions that you, when you read in Nehemiah and some of these other places, they talk about, about they remembered this one and then they saw this one and how they cried. It wasn't nearly as magnificent, but they did follow the same plan. And Absolutely. They never tried to, to build Ezekiel's temple. Now, you tell me why. What, what was the purpose for the temple to begin with? A place of worship and? And to give your sacrifices and? What was God's intention in giving it to them? We could go back to, we probably should, would be best to go to Romans chapter 7 maybe. The purpose for the law was what? To point us to Christ. And it was a teacher or a tutor to lead you to Christ. So all of the articles, all the practices, all the laws, all the system of doing things, everything had a spiritual truth to it, right? A message, right? And so when, when this Herod's temple was built, had Jesus come yet? No. So because he had not come yet, they were definitely repeating this pattern because they were still looking forward to this thing, which this temple of their era, of of this generation before the cross, this temple was a picture of the coming Christ. It It was one of the things that God gave them to say, this is what he'll be like. And what was it that John said when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so with with this first temple, it was necessary, or or Herod's temple rather, it was necessary that it still be identical to the first temple. Do it exactly as I gave it to Moses and so forth, right? Mount Sinai. All right, so, but the end temple is not quite the same. There are some variations and changes. So you tell me, why do you think the variations and changes? What would be the logic to why the change? What has already happened? Yeah, so here, let's just put on here Hebrews 8 to 10. And he says in Hebrews 8 to 10 about sacrifices, what? Okay, so uh, no longer needed, right? Because Why? Jesus is the one once for all, right? For all sacrifice. Okay, but now with that established, knowing that there are changes in this temple, and yet what do they, what do they establish in this temple? A place for more sacrifices. Right. So what we want to do when we're done with this is try to reconcile why the sacrifices without violating this principle that's taught in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that there's no need for these sacrifices. So if there's no, need, quote, need for them, then why does God put them in place? Is God's way right? Yes. Right. So if he has said, I'm going to put it back in place for a thousand years while I'm reigning on this earth, do you think God has good reason? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it really is a stupid question, but at the same time, at least people stop saying, well, but that can't be, that can't, we're going to stop resisting what feels like it shouldn't be and say, yes, it is. I don't, you know, I can't explain all of it yet because why it's future, right? We don't know totally, but what we can do is as we go through this to look, to see the details that God is giving us and the things that they are going to be doing and Consider in the flow of Ezekiel where we're at, what has already happened, 
what God keeps pointing out to us about why he's doing the things he's doing with Israel. And then consider then what might he be doing once he's put back on the land with his people. What is going to happen during those thousand years that requires a temple to be there for God to accomplish that with his people, Israel? All right. Now, let's, let's start with, um, we've kind of laid this. I thought it was interesting that he measures too. He measures. I was going to put one more point on here before we get to the outline. He measures the temple, right? And what does he measure it with? A line of flax. Did anybody do a word study on that and look to see what that was talking about? No? You mean you didn't have time? (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, a line of flax. Let me give it to you right out of the translation here. Um, It's number 6593. And it translates as linen or flax. And it's just a fiber used as a material for garments. In, the, in Hyam's book, he says of it, it is a strong, a strong and supple and it does not stretch. So it's, it's consistent and it's reliable for measuring. And so that's why he would have used a line of flax. Nothing significant or profound about it, but just that it's consistent and it's reliable, okay? All right, so now let's start with the outlining. (laughs) All right, we're going to start with chapter 40. And let's see how much we can get through without getting totally confused. (laughs) Verses 1 to 4 is what? What's going on in verses 1 to 4 of Ezekiel 40? We know it's a vision. We know he's gone to the land of Israel. We know he's on that very high mountain. We know there's something that looks like a a structure like a city that's to the south. And so there he is, and now what? What do we learn? Yes, he does. He says, now give attention to it. So, because I am going to, sh- what I am going to show you, for I have been brought here in order to show it to you. Interesting though, I have been brought here is another little clue about that man. He has been de- dictated or commanded or ordered to do something, right? Oh, you, I'm so sorry. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. I'm sorry, you're right. Thank you. Okay, right, and then declare it to the house of Israel, all that you see. So behold, there was a wall and uh, on the outside of the what? The temple. So what was this a vision of? The temple. So we know that's what the, the overall principle of this is, is one through four shows us that this is a vision about the temple. He's gone to, a, uh, to, the, to uh, Jerusalem to see this temple. We know that at this point in history, the temple has fallen. So he's not actually seeing the temple of his day. It's gone. He's gone into the future to see a temple that's yet to be built. Um, what, we, what we're going to find is all these um, points then that now he's going to bring up is all technical. So let's see what we can do with it. <laughs> okay, verse 5, I set apart by, by itself. What is in verse 5? What does it tell us about? A wall. So I don't know how you titled it. There's my title, a wall. (laughs) A wall. And where is the wall location-wise? 
outside of the temple. Okay, so that would be an outside perimeter, perimeter wall, correct? All right, now, 6 to 16, what's coming up next? Uh-huh, a gate to that faced east, right. A gate that faced east. Now, for you and I, that means, that means nothing, but it might mean something to them if it's in the wrong placement as far as facing somewhere. I don't know if there's, what the change has been at this point. Does anybody know? Is it facing the correct way at this point? Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, and besides the gate that faced east, there were also some another uh, compartments that were t- described, and guard rooms. And a porch. And porch. Okay. All right. So is that pretty much what that s- section is about? And it goes on to give us cubics and so forth. Right? Did you guys get um, instruction about what a cubit was? Did anybody look that up? About 18 inches. That's what the, that is what the commentary says. Let's see if I brought my thing with me. A cubit. I, I measured something off, and I was going to bring it with me, but I don't think I did. It's not in there. Okay, so it's about 18 inches. The, new, the NIV renders it at about 18 inches is what it says. It is a, it is a unit of measurement. Um, all right, so now what? So we now know what the measurement is. I think that's kind of interesting, though, because if you, if you know what the measurements are, if you were really ambitious, and I remember when, when I taught this to my kids years and years ago, we did a, a diagram of, the, of uh, the new heaven and the new earth with, with my little group of Sunday school kids that I was teaching. It was a retreat thing. And we uh, took a box, and we measured things off, and we looked things up in the encyclopedia and found out what color certain things were, and we drew things on and colored and put it on. Well, if you wanted to do that with this, could you imagine? I mean, the measurements of this thing are going to, it's going to be massive, but it would be fun. <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> yes. A rod of measurement. And he's talking about how the, the measurement of it being that with the cubic. Right. Cubit. All right. What do we see in 20 to 23? Oh, sorry. 17 to 19. What did I put on here? That was it. It's an outer court. And what is affixed with the outer court? Chambers and a pavement, right? So an outer court. Is there a direction given to us for this outer court? He went to the east. In a court of, okay, east. I don't know why I have. Okay, outer court, east, uh, gate, and... Oh, oh, I'm in the wrong sentence here. Sorry. Let me change this. Outer court, chambers. How, does it say how many Chambers. 30. Now, the, I found this was interesting because um, I couldn't quite figure it out. If there's 30 of them, and I know a square has four sides, to try to divide that down didn't make sense. Did anybody figure that out? 
Huh? Yeah, I thought it was too. But what I found out from Chaim is it actually is only on three sides. And therefore, there are ten chambers on three sides. Which three sides is what we have to figure out, probably, as we wanted to be really detailed about this. Or you can look on Kay's chart. There you go. And so which sides are they on? Yes, not the west. Isn't that interesting? On the west side, everything seems to keep being devoid. I've noticed that as we went through this. So the outer court chambers, which are 10 of them, okay, or 30 of them, 10 on each side of the three sides. Okay, 20 to 23. This is really tedious, isn't it? We're going to just do one chapter, and we're going to move on to the end on this, I promise. (laughs) Okay, 24 to 27. 20 to 23 is what I meant. (laughs) Again, outer court, correct? On the north gate. And what? Yeah, that one was interesting. I liked that about the palm trees. I, I got real artistic in, in sort of drawing them and so forth. Did anybody do any research about those palm tree ornaments and what they might look like? Oh, did they? Well, so one of the things I thought was interesting is because if you have ever been traveling overseas and seen a lot of Greek or, or whatever, these Byzantine art, architectural things... Uh, this is, I drew a picture on my sheet here. Can you kind of see it with just with the pillars that go straight up and at the top of these little look like palm tree kind of things. Have you ever seen those in pictures in art, in art pictures? I think that's what they're talking about. Now there are other places that talks about palm trees where it's actually uh, as reliefs in the walls that I think it's going to be beautiful. And in that one, it was reliefs of these palm trees with also the the cherubims, two faces of the cherubim we're showing, right? One facing one way, one facing another with palm trees. And that would be actual palm trees would be my guess. Although maybe it's it's reliefs of these columns in between them, potentially. I don't know. But in one of the drawings I saw it was actually palm trees. I thought it was real pretty. But that, I think, is what it is because it's talking about them being on flanking each side of doorposts and so forth. So it's probably more like a Greek-looking column that comes up and at the top with a fluted. Hyams calls it a crown of, of palm. So like a little crown topper, okay? This, I thought that was a little interesting. At least it's kind of got my artistic brain going a little. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go to 24 to 27. And now we're where? The south gate, in again, outer court. South gate. So how are we seeing a kind of a pattern here? In these three here, we get outer court, outer court, outer court, east, north, and south. Okay. I think I did it backwards on my chart. Okay. there. No, I see it. It's up here. I keep losing place because they're all, they all look so much alike. Okay, 28 to 31. Now we switch from the outer court, and where do we go? To the inner court. And we do the same thing, don't we? Is it almost a repeat? Outer, inner court, south gate, and the guard rooms? 
I think it's interesting that they have to have guard rooms in this. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I hope that's not it. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, Eastgate uh, and guard rooms. And then 35 to 37, again, inner court. I did 32 to 34, the East Gate. I did that one. Inner court. Uh-huh. Now the inner court on the North Gate, right? In 35 to 37. North Gate and guard rooms. So again, a, a pattern develops. We see the first pattern was from ch- uh, verses 17 to 27, and each of those three paragraphs was outer court, outer court, outer court, east, north, south. Now we have the inner court, inner court, inner court, inner court, south, east, and north is how they're listed, right? All right, so that gives us a pattern to kind of follow with our eye, and that was helpful to me to at least see some kind of a flow that I could follow a little bit in my brain, right? That he was showing a, a pattern of flow inside this court area and the inner court. Outer court, then inner court. 38 to 43 is interesting room. What do you see here? To kind of describe this one to me. I want to hear a little bit more on this part of it. What, what's going on in this chamber? What do we see here? Yeah, it's, it's a place for offerings. It talks about tables being there. What are they going to do with these tables? Yeah, for things that they're going to slaughter. It says, on which to slaughter the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering on a table, which is interesting. Would you say that's slightly different from what we had in the old temple of where they did the slaughtering? I thought so. Chamber with this doorway was by the side pillars at the gates. And there, there they rinse the burnt offering. And in the porch of the gate were two tables on each side on which to slaughter the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. And on the outer side, as one went up to the gateway toward the north, were two tables. And on the other side of the porch of the gate were two tables, four tables total, were on each side uh, next to the gate or Eight tables on which they slaughtered. So four and four, total of eight um, for the burnt offering. So I thought this, this was quite, to me, caught my attention because, again, of the fact that all of a sudden now we're being presented here with the fact that there's going to be sacrificing, literal animal sacrificing going on in this temple, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so we have 38 to 43 are, and do we see locations for for these kinds of, of uh places these these tables and so forth where are these inner court court. okay chambers for rinsing it doesn't really give us a c-h-a-n okay so i'm just going to put chambers for rinsing and tables for slaughtering very interesting All right, then we go to 44 to 47. This is the part, Brenda, we're here. She'd like this part. I want this chamber. (laughs) What's going on in 44 to 47? 
chambers for the singers. And so what does that imply to you about singers? They're going to be singers. So it, it kind of gives you the, the definite impression of the idea that this is, this is a lot like what we even call it in our church, you know, the sanctuary where there's places where these people will go. They will, they will have the singers. And what are the singers going to be there for? Obviously for the worship, right? That makes sense. Um, and where are the chambers for these who are the singers? Is there a distinction in, in them? Is there one or two of these chambers? There are two. There's one on the north and one on the south. Now, did it identify specifically, besides singers, it also has mentioned in there what? The priests. Is there a distinction in the priests and who gets to be in which chamber? Yes. So the, the priests who face south do what? What is their job? They keep charge of the temple. And the priests who face north, they keep charge of the altar. Interesting. Okay. So I'm just going to put on here north and south chambers for singers and priests. So we're back to having a priestly system in this. Because we have priests, we also have singers. And this was definitely something they also had in that first temple. Um, then we, we conclude then with 48 and 49, and what do we see? He just, he, interesting why, that he found it important to mention that he measures the pillar of the porch, each side of the pillar of the porch. how long these columns were. That is, what do you think on that one? Any ideas? Me either. Can you tell I'm not a very good teacher this morning? <laughs> this is way outside my realm of understanding, guys. This is definitely stuff where, where it's pure obedience to God to say, well, we're going to study it, we're going to look at it, we're going to do what we can to try to draw conclusions out of it because a lot of this just does, I have no point of reference for it. And therefore, exactly. So, so with that said, and we can keep doing this if you want. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. We're going to be done early today. <laughs> but, but, but here's my thought, though. Is, yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, that was going to be my, my th- where I'm leading now is, okay, there's a couple of things that we have to do then, I think, with what we've looked at this week. Rather than going through line by line, laying it out, getting the structure, I mean, it's just very monotonous, very tedious, boring. and for a very, I know, I hate to say that, but a little bit boring. Um, and, the, and the point to it at the end is you and I are not going to be building this, right? Um, but is there a spiritual truth in this for you and I to learn something from? No, okay, thank you. I, wanted, I just would like to do that, make a little list on some of these things. What do we know about this temple? What do the details, such minute details of this is on the north, this is on the south, this is how big it's going to be, this is the measurements, this is... This is how high, this is, you know, location on 
placement of things and so forth. This is for this group of people and this is for this group of people. Do you see the intricacies of it? So what does that tell us? Number one, because it's so precise, it it is telling us this is going to be a literal reality. This is not just imagery. This is not just um, a fictitious thing. Oh, it's, it has a, has a spiritual realm of understanding to it. It's not. It's very deliberately precise. So th- this temple is, is a literal, uh, it's, gonna, it's a literal truth. It will be a reality, right? That's a good point to make because we do know in Daniel's 70th week, is, do they have a temple in here? Yes, yes they do. And we know, we know that whatever this temple structure will be during this time frame, that the Antichrist will desecrate it. And it's called the abomination of desolation. And we see that one actually even spoken of in the New Testament in Matthew 24, 15, correct? So we have that abomination of desolation. So we know that this temple is also not speaking of this temple. This one is, is going to be destroyed because what happens during this time frame here? The bowls of wrath, right? And when does Jesus return? At the very end of that. I'm looking for my other marker. Here it is. So I can have a different color here. So we know that Jesus comes at this time, right? And so he comes at the end. But the, all of this is going to be destroyed during those, those days of the bowls of wrath. We also know, as you had mentioned earlier, Diane, that there's, there's this huge earthquake at the end of that seventh, or during the time of the seventh bowl, and that that earthquake is going to literally totally transform the face of the earth, the way that it looks, the way things are laid out geographically. It talks about mountains being moved, islands being displaced, no more, more, sunken and disappearing. No, that's new heaven, new earth. Pardon? Right, but there are other cross-references, which we didn't do, and I'm hoping she's going to take us there. In, in, I think it's Isaiah where it talks about that, that, that the, it will be, maybe it's Zechariah. The, the, it is Zechariah, chapter 12, 13, 14 in there, that the, that the earth becomes like a, a great plain, and the mountain of God is pushed up, and it, be, it becomes higher than everything else around it. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, this is why when he is transported through this vision and he sees this area, he doesn't even recognize it. It's going to have been so trans, And probably, um, now I don't know at what point he sees the, the um, city and the temple in his vision, if it's after God has also healed the land to a great measure and it looks beautiful, or if it's right at the beginning when everything probably looks really Difficult because of the, all the stuff that's gone on. Thank you. Yes. 
So is Israel now doing a right to the nation as they were originally intended to do? Good question. And what do you think? Do you think that maybe one of the purposes for the temple and all the sacrifices is to be very much like it was uh, in the days when God originated it and when it was also even reestablished, that it was purposed to be a light to the nations, that people would see who God was through it and through its worship services and practices, that then people would come into faith, right? Um, I think so. One of the things that I I did is I made a little list about, um, where did I put it? I know, it's really crazy. Well, I did, I did do a list on, um, at some point, I may have deleted it though, because I had so much that was too complicated. It just became to a point where that would be a whole lesson by itself, and so I ended up deleting a lot of my thinking. You know, I always think a lot of things on, when I'm doing my charts and my, my papers sometimes get to be so crazy that I think, okay, you can't teach all this anyway, right? Um, oh, here it is. Okay. So what is the purpose for the first temple? Number one, it's a tool for lessons, correct? Lessons in faith and holiness, right? Okay. So if the point to the temple was to point to God's grace and to point to his sacrificial lamb, who was Jesus, right? And then secondarily, it was also to teach us about how to approach God, correct? What did we learn when we studied in Leviticus about that? What were some of the things that you learned in the book of Leviticus? Do you remember? There's a price to pay for, I'm sorry, for what? For sin, sin, absolutely. Okay, so one of the points in the temple originally was to teach about the consequences of sin, that that the consequences are death. And so in the the temple at the end of the age that we're looking forward to here uh, through Ezekiel's vision, do you think it's possible that in that era he's going to be doing the same kind of thing, teaching through the temple system and the sacrifice of animals, he's going to be demonstrating to those people of that generation what they did not see previous. Do you think maybe that could be it? I mean, there has to be a reason there's a temple, right? What is its purpose? I have a lot of references for this. Okay, good. Um, Isaiah 2, 2. Yes, yes, I looked that one up. Go ahead, yes. the mountain and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And we have Ezekiel 17:23 on the high mountain of Israel I will plant it that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar and birds of every kind will rest under it and they will nest in the shade of the branches. Well, this is the best one I think. Ezekiel 20:40 For on my holy mountain on the high mountain of Israel declares the Lord God there the whole house of Israel all of them will serve me in the land there I will accept them and there will and there I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts and all of your holy things awesome those are excellent okay let me let me make a rendition of these verses okay you said I know you said Isaiah 2 2 and then you said Ezekiel 17:23 and 
2040. That was a very good one. I like that one. 3722. Oh gosh, you got more? Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. You went into, I did that one. Go in, read the one in Revelation if you've got it there. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. Oh, okay. Now that's speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. That's why that one was familiar. Okay. Right, right. Are going to go there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, you know what? You bring up a really good point that I hadn't thought about. One of the things that we know Jesus has done so far is he has fulfilled so many of the feasts, correct? And in that day when he comes back to do these things, he's going to be fulfilling the additional feasts that are the fall feasts, correct? And one of those is the idea of tabernacling. The, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that Feast of Tabernacles, they continued to celebrate the whole time during the, the, the thousand-year reign. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that one. That's a good one. It could be tied in. That one's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Okay. That's why I took the 21. That's why I took 21 off because that's speaking of, of the... Of, uh, the now, now, that's a whole other thing about the the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and so forth. We know this earth is destroyed right. at the end of this a, a thousand year age and we get a new heaven and a new earth and the temple comes down. Now, does God take this one, the physical one from this earth and transport it to the new heaven and the earth or is it totally new? And I think it's totally new. I think it's totally new. That's why I erased it because it's totally new. One of the significant differences in the new heaven and the new earth is is there a temple in the new heaven and the new earth? No. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you think of that as another point of chewing on some of this, because, I mean, you guys are pretty quiet this morning, and I don't blame you because this is a tough one that I, I can't totally explain myself, but um, I'm learning, so we're going to learn together. But we know there's a temple here, but in the new heaven and the new earth there is not. So obviously the temple here has a profound purpose right? There's a reason God has it here for them at that time in the age, and he's going to use it. I think the verses that uh, Celeste just gave us are excellent, and, I, uh, and Kay did not even take us to, to a lot of those, but those are very good ones, and they're directly from the text. And the, one of the ones that you read, um, I think it was the tw- 2041, where it talked about in that temple's high on a mountain. Again, it's almost word for word. That of what he said here, he was taken very high, to a very high mountain. So you know that speaking of that same time frame on this very high mountain. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Well, we know that this earth is destroyed, so it's something new. Right. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So now what I want to do is real quickly, let's go into Leviticus and just review a tiny bit of what we remember from studying in Leviticus before and just kind of examine it, what the purposes for the temple before 
if they were these things, then might that somehow in its, in its, um, uh, in its point or in its purpose be the same, potentially, right? Since all we can do is, at this point is kind of guess on this, God doesn't give us some direct points right here in Ezekiel. And Kay did not take us to any cross-references. So I want to just take you to what we remember from our Ezekiel study and say, okay, well, what did we see in the old temple? And see how, if we can't compare what the old one's purpose was and compare it with what the new one is. Okay, go to chapter 10 because... I think one of the most profound things about the first temple was that it was to teach the holiness of God, correct? What do you remember about chapter 10 by when you flip in there? What does that uh, verse tell us, or what was your title for that chapter? Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10. You should have marked it in your Bibles because we did this before when we did our Leviticus study. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Leviticus 10 teaches us, uh, um, yeah, I was going to put on here. You must treat God as holy, and you must do it his way. That's right, do it his way, correct? All right, I love that. If that's just one point that they, were, that they are supposed to be doing in this temple in this time frame is to understand they are to treat God as holy and do it his way. From the things that we looked at this week in these very monotonous ch- chapters, would you say that in the processes of looking at that, you were seeing where God was setting himself apart to be highly revered, that there was to be a reverential fear of God even though he, I think that too often what we have, because it's like we have a familiarity, and it, it, I'm not saying it's all bad. Yes, he's your, he's your father. Yes, he loves you. Yes, it's awesome that you can see yourself as a little child crawling up into his laps and, and him hu- and hugging you and holding you close and making you feel good. But on the other hand, is that the full picture? No. Thank you. It is so important that we understand he is holy and, he, and we are to fear him in reverential fear. He's not your buddy. He's not, you know, and too often I hear people who very loosely say how he is your, yes, he's Abba Father, but he's not your buddy. He is God. He created you. He spoke a word and it came into existence. That is power. And in that he has a system here that he has set up for Israel previously, that he is going to reinstitute much of it. Slight differences. Why differences? Because this has happened. This cross has happened. These things have been fulfilled. They're in the new covenant here in this time frame. But yet they're going to have a temple. And they are going to have sacrifices. So why is the question? And I, I would just like to suggest that possibly it's for the same reason the first temple was given. To teach them reverential fear of the Lord right? That you are to honor him and treat him as holy and you're to do it his way, as you said, Diane, right? And Jesus, well, and Jesus is God, right? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So Leviticus 10, the original purpose of the temple, purpose of temple, the first one. 
I'm, we're just going to re- this is just by way of review of what we learned about it in Leviticus. It was to learn to treat God as holy and do it his way, right? In chapter 10. Let's go to 11. What did, what did it say there in, in 11? Do you remember your titles? This, these were some tough chapters. I remember when we did them the first time. I, do, I see them much clearer now than I did then even. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was a... a, a, a rep- no, you didn't. Okay, so in this one, it's about must-make distinctions, right? Between what? The clean... And the unclean. So what would be the point to that? Is it just because God wants to boss us around and tell us what to eat and not to eat? He gets to boss us around. <laughs> of course. He does get to boss us because he is, he is the Lord. But what is the point of this? Think about this. This is a people. They're going on to their land. And they're going to live under this system. What was this system teaching them through this law where they have to, every single day, make a distinction between Yes, I will eat. No, I will not eat. Does that make you think of anything back in Genesis? I drew on my Bible page the Garden of Eden tree with the, with the apple on it for this, for this chapter. Because this is all about simple obedience, saying God determines what's clean and unclean, period. And you get to decide every single day, will I do it God's way or my way? That's all it's about. Yes, it's about making distinctions between the clean and the unclean, but that's not the principle he's teaching. He's not saying, just do it my way just because I said. He's trying to teach us that he has made the laws. He is the law giver, and we are to obey the law that he gives us, whatever it is, right? And so in the process of that, there also is a process of making distinctions so that how would we bring that forward into our lives today? There are still rules, are there not, in God's word about what we can and cannot do. Are we to, every single day of our lives, make distinctions? You get up in the morning, you turn on the TV set. What should I watch? Or late at night, for some people, what shall I watch? You go to your computer and you flip through. Yeah, just turn it off. I'm with you on that one. You you flip through um, the Internet and you're flipping through page after page. And what, what... potentially can show up on your pages and it can tempt you to get sucked into it even if it's not bad things like pornography which i pray of course is not for us and i don't think any of us in here do that but but are there other potential things that can suck you in that would be equally as bad for your mind and your heart right uh do you remember the song be careful little eyes what you see right so ears what you hear exactly so This chapter about making distinctions is about knowing what God has said and doing it God's way again. So it's making distinctions. So here we have in chapter Leviticus 11 is make distinctions. And then again, this is going to be follow God's word in it whatever god has said god's word is the is the thing that you make your distinction based upon not how you feel about it not what you think about it not what your family talks about not what the world talks about but what does god say about that particular point boy this one can preach because i and i'm not going to go there but you could get on a on a real soapbox about 
certain kinds of lifestyles and certain kinds of life choices that people make, and they make it based on, well, it's good for me. It's right for me, right? And based on emotions and based on also a very polluted worldview because your view is not to be worldly. What is it to be? Biblical, God's way, right? And that's what Leviticus 11 teaches. I love that. Now, here's the next one. Cool. 12. Somebody handle that one for me now that we're on a roll. I loved this. I got the coolest insight on this one. Yes, purification after childbirth. I know. I can say, uh, James is going. <laughs> okay, I'm nervous. Let's not go there, right? That's how we all felt when we did it the first time. And, we're, and there were some others in here that, that go, go beyond that. You tell me, though, if you're thinking about the fact that God, everything in the Levitical system is for the purpose of teaching holiness, right? And or showing or pointing to God's sacrificial system, right? This one's really cool. You want me to just tell you what I figured out? This is about the bloodshed of man is unclean, but God's bloodshed is what's holy and makes atonement on the altar. Do you remember later in the book, let's see if I wrote it down in here, later in Leviticus 17.11, flip over to 17.11 real quick in Leviticus, and he's talking about the law for blood being only for atonement. Remember, we did figure that one out. Do you guys remember that when we studied it? And we said, oh, yeah, that's right. He has all these laws about blood, and blood is only for atonement. And they couldn't touch it. They couldn't eat it. They couldn't. Any, if blood was shed in any other way, they had to do ceremonial things to make themselves clean, right? And 1711 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. So, and we know that eventually it's Jesus' blood that makes the atonement, which is what Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 teaches us, that his blood is once for all. And so in the Levitical system, he was locking in their understanding about this very holy thing called blood and its symbolic message in truth. And that is, it was by blood that you are saved. It is only the blood of God who is holy. Man's blood is what? not a value. What happens when a woman is giving birth? She sheds blood. What could man do with that if God didn't put a law in here? Oh, if the shedding of blood brings life, then, oh, I just getting born, I'm made holy. Can you see a perverted truth teaching that could have come out of this if God had not put this law in there to say, no, life-giving as in the natural life-giving, right, of a woman, shedding her blood does not bring atonement for you, does not bring you into a place of holiness, does not make you clean. What it does do is what, according to Leviticus 12? Makes you unclean. And that's why you have to be born again. Exactly, James. But I was so excited when I went back. and went, Aha, this is the purification law. And what are you being purified from? From the uncleanliness of man's blood. 
I'm excited. You guys aren't doing Come on, come on. Isn't that exciting? Because now this chapter makes a lot better sense to me. Before, it was just about a, a law for women. And also, I, I got sidetracked because it talked about how many days for a boy and how many days for a girl. And there's probably some, some other symbolic meaning in that. And I'll get that revelation later, maybe. Or one of you will, and you could tell me. But for right now, what I see in this is just the, the why has God got a temple and its purpose. Well, at that time, the purpose was to teach man that their blood shed does not do anything except make you unclean. Man's blood is unclean. The only blood that makes you clean is the blood of atonement that God provides. And he had a temporal system through this this, uh, temple that pointed to what God would do one day on the cross, right? So here we have the Leviticus 12 is purification of man's unclean blood. In this case, woman. (laughs) But the principle held the same, didn't it? Man or woman, anytime blood was shed, it made them unclean because the only blood shed that was allowed in the, in the camp of Israel as a nation was that which was placed upon the altar for to make atonement. He really locked it in. He says, you don't get to have blood for anything else except one thing because you've got to get the picture. The picture is my blood is what makes atonement. And you are to, to do what according to... The end of this in chapter uh, 42, 20, the parameter of the temple separates the what? The holy from the profane. It's the same principle. He's saying, my temple shows you my holiness. It shows you how to approach me as your holy God. It helps you to understand how sinful man is, right? And how you can approach me through the blood. And what blood was it? The blood of Christ. Yes. Okay. And I, if you go under, right, right. I mean, when we did Leviticus, we spent a lot of time looking at a lot of stuff. I just didn't find that thread about the blood being so significant. The next time I teach it, and you might make yourself a note in your Bibles about Leviticus, that this whole, this whole message in here is about God sanctifying and setting apart the imagery of Jesus and his blood as being that which atones for them. I, you know, for me, I've always been told Leviticus is about the holiness of God. Well, it is about the holiness of God, but specifically it's about the holiness of God and how he shows that through the shedding of blood, his blood, that man is atoned for. And that's where the holiness aspect is revealed to us. We get tied up in the holiness. We, lo- we lost sight of it's the, all about the blood in this whole book. It starts at the beginning with sacrifices and all the way to the end is about sacrifices. Every time you see blood, it talks about do this if you shed this blood and do that if you don't shed that blood. In between there are these other chapters like 13. Go to 13 and let's look at it. In 13, he says there to do what? Yeah, it's talking about, about identifying impurities, isn't it? All these different, and it talks about, about 
there's a key phrase in there. It's talking about you shall look, you shall look, you shall look. And then he talks about the body, the body, the body. And in this case, it's identifying these things, all right? The law taught God's people the necessity for constant and purposeful search for impurities and how to purge them from their midst. Purge impurities quickly while they are small problems and prevent bigger problems or possibly even a catastrophe like what? What might happen if their leprosy becomes a really big problem? They get exiled, right? They were cast outside the camp. And until they became clean again and had to go through a ceremonial clean process, they couldn't come back into the camp. So what was God teaching here? What is there in this message for us? Church discipline might be one, absolutely. And for you and I, what's it telling us that we should be doing on a daily basis? Examining our lives and everything in our lives to see what are the impurities that should not be in my life. And when I recognize them, when God brings it to my attention that this is not a good thing for my life, I need to purge, purge it from my life. I need to be on my knees and ask God, God, please help me to remove this out of my life, remove this from my presence, right? Do whatever, whatever steps it takes. Did you notice all the steps? You have to do this, then you have to do this, then you have to do this. In other words, this kind of identity, identifying impurities, was teaching God's people to pay attention. What was the word here at the beginning? Give attention, right? Did anybody do a word study on that one? I want to show you that one because I thought it was really good. Um, it, it isn't so profound in that, that you, didn't, you aren't going to know what that word really means, but it is profound when you just break it down and look at all the qualities of it. It's talking about, um, it's, okay, did anybody do it? I didn't hear. 3820, uh, it's number 40, verse 4 is where the, he mentions it. He says, pay attention or give attention to it. I think it's it's kind of cool here though on the on the Leviticus 13 about the idea of purging impurities but you have to start by identifying the impurities right you identify that you have an impurity and then you purge it you do the steps whatever it takes necessary okay nobody did this so I'll just do it for you all right it is it's, it's the uh, definition of giving attention it uses these words first wisdom very interesting heart and mind. And that kind of, it's like, wait a minute. Well, what does that got to do with giving attention? Well, it's about wisdom, the heart, and the mind. Apparently merged in one, in one unit. It says the inner man, number one, inner man, mind, will, heart, understanding, It also talks about the, uh, mind me being knowledge, um, thinking, reflecting, 
also memory. I think that's interesting, for, especially for Israel. Think about the idea of him saying, pay attention. Use your mind, your knowledge, your thinking, your reflecting, and your memory. And, and when I looked up this word, that's when my mind started going back into Leviticus because God started helping me remember the things that we've learned before, considering using my mind to reason things through and thinking, if there's a temple at the end of the age, God has good reason. What would be the reason? We know it's not for, obviously, not for sacrifices for sin in the same way as it was prior to the cross, correct? Because the cross will have happened. So there's a different purpose, but also maybe some similar qualities. So how do we reconcile these two things? That they're going to give sin offerings, they're going to make... uh, they're going to actually atone for the altar or cleanse or purify that altar at the end time so that they can make their sacrifices on that altar. We know that there are chambers for the priests Mm -hmm. and the priests are going to do what with those holy sacrifices that are given? Do you remember? They eat, but they have to eat them in the holy places. Why? Because the sacrifices are symbolic of what? Of what? Christ, exactly. They're symbolic of Christ's work and what he did on the cross. And so they are to treat what is holy as holy. They are to have a reverential fear of the Lord in understanding that what they're doing. So how would you say at the end of the age, if they're making these sacrifices on the altar, we know it doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't done what he's done. So what might it be for them in that time in history? Like communion, that's a good thought, because communion is done for what reason? In remembrance of what happened, right? So maybe at the end of the age, I mean, we have to conclude that it's obviously not that we're, we're negating or saying that Jesus' blood didn't occur or that they don't enter into the same covenant that we do. What is the covenant that they are going to enter into as a nation? Do you remember the covenant where it was? Ezekiel 36 talked about it. In that day, I will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the old, right? What will I do? That's right. Remove their heart of stone. The law is done. Remove the heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh and place my spirit in them. So they are in the new covenant, right? So Jesus' blood did take care of all their debt, right? So... That obviously is not what the end of the age temple sacrifices is for. Correct? All right. There's something about not making the people, you know, making the people become holy. And uh, in 2.14, there's work with a a word that was kind of somewhere in there. And the priests, well, before that, the priests are, you know, put on their garments and they go in and they minister to the Lord and eat the most holy thing. And in 14, when the, when the priests enter, then they shall not go out into the outer court in the sanctuary without laying there their garments in which they minister. Right. They, are holy. they shall put on other garments, then they shall approach that which is for the people. Right. So it's like, it's like um, in the, the, pro- the original, the- in the original, they, they didn't have to do that. Yeah, they did. They didn't. They did not wear their holy garments out into the populace. They only wore them in the temple, especially the high priest. Remember, there's a whole. So when the people brought their sacrifices, they had different ones. 
No, but they were serving as ministering before the Lord when they came in. The people only came in so far, and then they went in before the Lord. And when the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies, there was a complete redressing and a real particular thing. Oh, yeah, the, 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 yes. Yeah, you're right. No, absolutely. I thought I was undressed. (laughs) Thanks, Barbara. (laughs) I'm going, "Mm, what's wrong? (laughs) But yes, I, but in any event, what they're saying here in this part again, is they're really, there's, they're, he's giving you an example in 13 of what he says in verse 20, that you are to divide between the holy and the profane, the holy and the common. That which is God's is reserved for God's service in reverential respect for him, understanding his holiness, understanding the seriousness of your role as a priest before me and the common everyday thing. And in this one, he says that he says, you shall eat the holy things in the, in that place, which is holy. And then when you're going to go outside the outer court to be among the people, you change your clothing and you go out among the people as a, a member of the community in your own clothing. But you don't wear your holy things and just treat them as, uh, as profane, as common. I, I, in a way, that could preach for how to dress when you come to church, huh? Yeah, exactly. Why not? The, there's the common and there's the, the profane. Yeah. Us old fogies are all going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So... Um, all right, so let me, where'd my Bible go? Here it is. So we got the identifying of the impurities and the purpose for that in Leviticus 13 was that they, first of all, number one, that they identify those impurities and then purge them. And when he has said to, to Ezekiel that they're to give attention, that this is about the idea of the wisdom and the heart and the mind using the thinking, using the reasoning, using the heart. And it's all based on the knowledge of God. According to Ezekiel, everything is, this is what I say, therefore do this. And, you're, and the, uh, the ultimate one, when you looked at it, was to make the distinctions in Leviticus 11 was just like the Garden of Eden. He told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree except for this one. But then when they made distinction, what did they do? They listened, they listened to the tempter and they ate of that tree and they should not have. And then they paid the consequences. So in this time, what God is showing us that is, is, I think, through the old system, is that maybe these are the same principles he's wanting to ha- have demonstrated even here. Well, how might these, learning these kinds, and we could go on through the whole book, and we're not in Leviticus, but, but learning these principles about treating the Lord as holy. Um, hold on, let me look at my list here. The holiness of God, reverential fear, how to approach our holy God, right? The necessity and value of obedience to his word and understanding our sin and its consequences, what it cost God and what it would cost us if we don't live in obedience, what what the results might be, right? If those are still qualities that you think God would want for his people when we go into the eternal kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth, would this thousand years not be a good time of training for us? Especially if, um, would you say there are some Christians that you know that are today that are truly Christians, they love the Lord, but they're marginal. They're, they're kind of, they're only lukewarmish committed, it seems like, and they just don't seem to get that serious about learning God's way, knowing God's law, really being able to make distinction so that then they make a lot of bad choices in their life. 
even though they're Christians and they love the Lord, and you know they do, but they still keep not choosing between the, 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 the holy and the unholy. They don't make those distinctions between the, the profane and the holy. Yes. Right. I did well, and I think that you know there are even real followers, but that they don't get serious about learning the word of God. They they're like that church. Um, they've kind of lost their first love. Where where the the letter to the Ephesians says that you know they're they're busy about doing God's work, and they're involved in activities and doing things, and and they seem real passionate about the Lord. At least from our perspective. No, only God knows the heart. So I'm not trying to you know, place a judgment on a person. I'm just saying, from our perspective, we're looking around us, we're seeing there are some people who are very involved, they're serving God, they're, they're in ministries of various kinds, but they're not serious about doing what we're doing right here in this classroom, really knowing God's word and taking the time to, oh my gosh, go through these three chapters and outline them and then start evaluating, what am I supposed to learn in this? This is a tough thing to learn something in, isn't it? And yet, do you think we're starting to learn something in it? I feel like I'm starting to learn something. Uh, I, I think, um, at least for personally, I've got to make the point myself is that not becoming legalistic with this. That's but right. But increase my sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You read my mind. <laughs> Right, no. And do we think, do you and I think that this list of rules of how to, to measure and all, and the size and which chamber, is that for you and me? No. no. So, but is there a message in it for us? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm, going to, I'm just going to read to you what, something that came into my mind on this. Is I said, I believe for us, it is the paying attention that God is most interested in. Yesterday, um, Wes gave a, a thing, and he said he got an award, remember? He's talking about, he was talking about the, the Bema seat and the judgment of Christ and being rewarded for the things which we do, the righteous acts of the saints that we will get rewards for. We go before Christ's judgment seat. That's not judgment for sin. That's judgment for the works that we do as God's children. And it's for reward, not judgment. We call it a judgment seat, but it's really to pass through the fire as it says in 1 Corinthians, the things that we've done in this life and what comes out refined as gold and silver and precious stones, those are the things by which we get rewarded for. And I thought, see, there was a, um, there was a passage in Leviticus that perfectly demonstrates this, the one about the priests. Let me see if we can find Where's the priest thing about the Zodak? Here it is. Go to chapter 43 of Ezekiel and thinking about the Bema seat that we're going to be rewarded, right, by God. Here is a demonstration of a reward that God has given. And we're going to study this out more carefully next week. But keep in mind what Wes taught us in Sunday school. And those of you who were not there, just consider the Bema seat um, of Christ, which is 1 Corinthians chapter, um, is it 5? 
chapter three, chapter three, where it talks about our works going through the fire and that we will be rewarded for, for the things that we do in the flesh, right? For him, for his glory. And here we see it says, and, and God said to me, now that was another thing I thought was interesting. Did you notice how 43 makes a switch from the man with the appearance like bronze being the one leading him and speaking him? And who's speaking to him in 43? The Lord is. Okay. All right. So he says here, the Lord says this. He says to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on that day or in the day that it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok. Now, who is that? Right? Who drew near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of his blood. And he goes on and he talks about it. So the question I want you to keep in your mind is about this, this line, this lineage, Levitical priest from the line or the offspring of Zadok. You're going to learn this week who they are and why they got exalted for this end time service. And if that's not a demonstration of a reward for l- this life's work, doing it to honor God, there it is. Do you think you'll, you're going to be rewarded for your faithfulness? If you and I are doing these things, we are treating God as holy, doing it his way. You have to know his way, don't you? That's why he says, give attention to these things. You need to know what I'm saying in order to give attention to it. Specifically for, for Israel, the house of Israel, he's saying pay attention to even the structure, the building of this, because you're going to build it one day, and one of your generations in the future is going to build it, Right? And so you need to be teaching it and you need to be paying attention because it's different. He didn't say that. He didn't say because it's different. But is it different? Yeah, it's slightly different. And so he's saying paying attention now to this vision because when they build it, they need to build it exactly as I have given you instructions for. I would bet that in that time, God will give us more clarification. There'll be further instruction given. Uh, One of the things that Chaim says in his book is that some of the controversy is because of the vagueness of some of the points. It's not as detailed as the first temple instructions were. And there are some things that they recognize because of their familiarity with the, how the temple works. There are some things that are still vague that are not really defined for us. Do you think God will give them clarity when it's time? Yes. Yeah. But in the meantime, he's saying teach them about this temple. Because what is that telling those people of Ezekiel's time? What is, it te- what is he saying to them about that, about that temple? Pay attention to this temple. There is a temple where God's glory will return. There's a temple where God's glory will return. Now, when they got their new temple at Herod's temple that was built, did God's glory return? No. So do you think if they had studied what Ezekiel said, they would recognize this is not it? Should they have recognized this is not it? Do you and I recognize this is not it? How do we recognize it's not it? The layout, the, the, the dimensions, the way it looked, and God's presence was not there. Yeah, they did. But I, and I'm just saying, yeah, they did. And, and they also talked about very clearly about how it did not have the same glory and grandeur either. So they pined away for their old Solomon's temple. But what I'm saying is when they built this one and God's glory did not show up, they immediately should have known that was not 
the time frame in which Ezekiel was speaking of when his spirit would come and dwell in them, they would be his people and he would be their God. Because there's too many factors missing at that time in history. And in this time, they will be fulfilled. Pardon? And then Jesus came. Right. And by the way, when Jesus came and the temple, Herod's temple fell, what, sh- what, did, what does Hebrews basically tell us about that? If the temple had still been in place, what would the Jews kept on doing? They would have kept on sacrificing. And so what does God do? He destroys it so that they can't. And they should have been able to pay attention and go, aha, then there's no need. Mm-hmm. But he's really, he's, that's exactly right. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities because one of the things that God does with the new temple is put up additional barrier walls between the holy and the unholy. They're stronger. They're larger. The, the depths of these walls is humongous. One of the things I thought was interesting though, is when you go into the holy of holies, what, what is the access way that takes you in there? Is it a veil? It's a door. <laughs> I love that. No veil. Why? The picture of the veil was Jesus that was rent for you and I. And it was rent at the time of his crucifixion. So in the new temple that Ezekiel's having them build, there's no veil. It's a door. And what does Jesus say about the door? I am the door and the narrow, the way is narrow, right? So he, he talks about a door in a different perspective than in this temple. We see that, the reality of that. Isn't that exciting? Um, okay, so he says, um, okay, so pay attention. What God is most interested in is that we are paying attention, not whether we agree on each detail at this moment. Some of it is vague, but I fully believe it will be made clear at the appropriate time. The building will be be built, and it will be built according to the exact intentions of God. And he'll give more clarity, I believe, in that day. The rabbi through the ages, these different rabbis, they have disagreed on interpretations of Ezekiel's vision. Some have added mysticism. That's what this man does. A lot of his comments, you can see the mystical Kabbalah stuff kind of coming in. Um, and it's, I don't know, maybe they've added that mysticism to their attempts for interpretation primarily because um, they are, I assume, without the Holy Spirit, right? So if they're not in the New Covenant, they don't have illumination of the Spirit, and they're reading these things about Ezekiel, and they're really confused. You and I at least have the advantage of going, okay, we know this cross has happened. We know about the end time of this kingdom coming and that that's where this temple goes. So already we have a better perspective, right? Their perspective was, well, maybe it was this one, maybe it was this one, but it wasn't. So now I'm confused. I'm looking at that. They don't know where to put it in history. They're confused, right? Um, uh, but I do believe not. He's there since they're not illuminated by the Holy Spirit for their endeavors. Yet there is a message here from God for us. So, here's my final. So, because this is a yet future event for our precept classes purposes, right? It's more important that we look for the who and the whys to God's commandment about this temple building 
and not so much the details and the precision of them. However, we still need to keep in mind that the precision of following God's instructions exactly like what happened here, treat the Lord as holy, what happened in Leviticus 10 when those priests did not do exactly what God said? They were killed. God took their lives right there on the spot. And so we need to know that, yeah, those details are important, but for you and I, because of our position in Christ as the bride of Christ, we are not going to be the ones building it. What we need to do is step then to the next level and, again, look at the forest rather than the trees and say, what is the message of this for you and I? What does God want us to see about the building of this temple and why God says pay attention and to do it his way and that his holiness will return to that temple, right? That's what we can, we can look forward to. He is going to return to this earth in a temple and he is going to dwell among his people. One day we get to see that. What does that do for your heart? Aren't you excited? Doesn't that make you just go, yeah, God, get here quick, right? Okay, God's instructions are important and will be made clear for those who will be called to execute them. And I can't wait to see it. I can't wait. Yes, Diane. That's, I, that's also in Zechariah, I think, in Zechariah 14. Pardon? It was in our study, Zechariah. Yes, and on the bells and on the right and on the roof. Exactly, and it all will be holy unto the Lord. And he says very clearly that, we, that their, his purpose in giving them this is that they be able to distinguish the, the, the holy from the profane or the common. The holy from the common. You need to distinguish. Why? Because God is holy and you better approach him as holy in reverential fear. And that's, I think, one of the purposes for that temple is to teach us that better so that when we enter into our eternal glory, we are prepared. Yeah. Yes. 